Welcome to the Bible Feed podcast, a place for conversations about the Bible and faith in the modern world, where ordinary people come together to help each other understand the Bible better. Let's get started. Welcome everybody to the Bible Feed podcast. We're going to introduce a new series that's coming up in the coming weeks about church history and we're going to lay some of the groundwork um, for some of the issues that we'll see during that series and realize they didn't spring out of nowhere we're going to think about what it was like to be a christian in the first century and make us realize and understand what we should expect from a church today i've got paul with me here hi lawrence uh, yeah it's, it's really useful to look back and think place ourselves back in the first century but it's quite hard to imagine what it would have been like it's just so long ago our life in in the 21st century is just worlds apart from the first century life was so different but it's useful to think about what would you expect to be the same what would you expect to recognize and what uh, and what might change over time yeah absolutely we just haven't got a lived experience of being there so there's no way that we can kind of say exactly how it was but maybe the way to approach it is to engage in a in a, in a thought experiment so bear with me here sounds like fun Take yourself, take your 21st century consciousness and put it into a body of somebody in the first century and a first century Christian. Uh, let's give this person a name, okay? Maybe this person is Tremendous Hummus, the chef from Milvian Bridge, okay? Okay, where is where is Milvian Bridge? Do they have a football team? I think they have, the, I think it's the Milvian Bridge Rovers, not doing so well now. I think they're from the north of Rome, if, I, if I'm correct. Okay, Tremendous Hummus. Tremendous hummus. Okay. And um, I mean, there's other names as well you could use, you know, you know, frivolous, ceremonious, the jester, maybe. Have you got any? Yes, of course. Um, what about hideous chorus, the musician? Oh, I think we should just recommend that everyone just Googles words that end in us and just make your own Roman name up. Build your own Roman name. Okay, so anyway, Tremendous Hummus the Chef. It's about 65 AD. Uh, He became a Christian about 10 years ago in Rome, and he's just moved to Philippi. And obviously the reason for him moving is because they appreciate his chickpea-based starters. And he's just about to walk into a local Christian community. So what we're going to do is just consider us in that body, uh, you know, with our 21st century mind, what would we recognise? What would we find different? Uh, well, this is a fascinating thought experiment, but but maybe just before we get to uh, tremendous walking into uh, the Christian community in, in Philippi, perhaps we can just think about why, how and why he might have become a Christian in the first place. What sort of things convinced people to become Christian? So, let, so let's just think about that. I mean, throw a few ideas as to why people might have become Christians. We know people were preaching things about the resurrection of Jesus, and there were witnesses, people claiming to have seen Jesus raised from the dead. That's something that might have convinced people to become a Christian. The idea of resurrection there would have been, you know, a really new and prominent message that they that they uh, would have heard, something quite different from what, what there would have been around them. And the, But then also, coupled with that, we had miracles being done you know miracles would have been very persuasive seeing something miraculous happen and then the message that is coupled with that would have obviously borne some authority so they may have seen a miracle they may have uh, then lent authority to the message which obviously was the gospel yeah so so saying someone was raised from the dead is a pretty extraordinary claim and uh, and if someone claims that but then they're able to do some apparently miraculous things then Mm. it lends authority to that yeah and it and it's that's all about a solution to death, a solution to mortality, you know, resurrection from the dead. So that, that's pretty appealing, I would say. Yep. 
to get involved with uh, with with a community that has that that to look forward to. There's a little bit more about um, things like forgiveness for the uh, the errors of your past and being forgiven for that and and being able to kind of be washed clean of that and start a new life that could be pretty appealing i also think that um there would have been some advantages to to people being associated with a community like this because you know we read in in acts of the apostles how they would have had everything common so there would have been this kind of society um benefit as well at the time uh, coupled with really amazing doctrines and, and hope for the future yeah it's a group of people that seem to behave differently from the way society is around them and the way they took care of their sick and the poor and, and so on. So so lots, maybe lots of different reasons. I guess we don't know why Tremendous Hummus yeah. became a Christian, but it could have been anyone or a mixture of those things. Yeah, and I'm sure coupled with emotional reasons would have been the um, intellectual response to, to the gospel message, you know, very similar to the way in which people respond to the call of the gospel today. So we're about to walk into a, a uh, Christian gathering. We're in Philippi, tremendous hummus, and um, strides into a Christian gathering. What's going to be going on in that gathering? So, I, you know, I suppose the first question is when? When are we going? Tremendous likes to be punctual. So when's it? When, is it, when has he got to turn up to this Christian gathering? A um, couple of hints in, um, in the New Testament. Acts chapter 20 talks about them gathering, uh, I think it's Acts chapter 20, uh, verse, verse 7, on the first day of the week when we were gathered together to break bread, Paul talked with them, intending to depart on the next day, and he, he ended up speaking for quite a long time. The point is, they were gathered to break bread, and we'll talk about that in a minute, it was on the first day of the week. So that is Sunday, essentially, mm-hmm. the day after the Jewish Sabbath, the first day of the week. But actually, if we go right back to the beginning, if we go back to Acts chapter 2, when it all kicked off in Jerusalem on the day of Pentecost, and many of the Jews in Jerusalem received the gospel and were baptised, at the end of chapter 2... There's a few verses there that are worth reading because there's quite a lot of information there. So verse 42 of Acts chapter 2, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers, and awe came upon every soul and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. All who believed were together and had all things in common. You mentioned that. They were selling their possessions and uh, distributing uh, as any had need. And then verse 46, and day by day attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts. So so there doesn't seem to be a particular day on which they would they would gather. But the interesting thing about this, and this is a real difference, uh, I think, with from the 21st century, is these days on which they would gather would be normal working days, not a weekend. You know, the structure of a seven-day week was not really a feature of the way the Romans operated. It was a Jewish thing. Yes, but mm-hmm. not a Roman. So in Philippi, operating on, under Roman arrangements, and you know the calendar was just structured in months, and they sort of counted days by reference to three days of the month. There's public holidays around there for feasts and festivals and worship of whatever Roman god, but there's not really a weekly structure. So it's really likely that this gathering is happening on, on a normal working day. Yeah, that's interesting. The fact that our 21st century mind is so structured around that, that sevens than having mm. the, the two days of, 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 a, of a weekend here in the Western world, we would have, uh, you know, that would be fairly ubiquitous. And, you know, no regular day of rest in the Roman calendar, which, yep. you know, really is confusing on when to decide when to wash your chariot. Um, you know, I'm not <laughs> sure how they would have decided that. So what about the Jewish Sabbath then? Where does that go and how does that influence these early Christians? So Sunday wasn't a day of rest, it was a working day the first day of the week yeah um a working day and and it wasn't declared an official day of rest until 
300 years later, after tremendous. <laughs> in 325, Constantine declared it a day of rest. But you might think, well, why didn't they use the Sabbath? Many of the first Christians were Jews. They'd be used to that weekly cycle of the Sabbath being a day of rest. Why wasn't that the day they used? I don't have a definitive answer to that question, but a few thoughts. There's possibly... Many of the first Christians were Jews. That's where it all started in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and spread from there. They may well have continued to go to you know, observe the Sabbath and go to the synagogue on the Sabbath. And also we know that people like Paul went to the synagogue on the Sabbath and that's where they knew Jews were gathered together on the Sabbath and they could preach the gospel. So it was an opportunity to reach out to, to Jews and, and tell them about the gospel of Jesus Christ. But it's also possible that later, as the Jewish authorities rejected Christians and the gospel of Christ, so in order to separate from that, to mark themselves out as something different from Judaism, Christians started to meet on the first day of the week, not the Sabbath. Mm. That's a possibility. Are we saying that we don't fully know why there's the Sabbath for you know, followers of Judaism and and then, you know, Christianity picks the first day. I suppose one of the first day reasons would have been that, you know, references to the early activity of the apostles. It might be actually, and I've just thought of this, the first day of the week is, of course, the day on which Jesus rose from the dead. Right, yeah, yeah. So there's that natural association to it. Yeah. So what we're saying, Paul, is that you really don't have a fully definitive answer as to why. Uh, but what we want to establish is whether, is there anything that we can look at for evidence of this happening outside of the scriptures? It's not definitive, uh, and it's not specifically about meeting on the first day rather than the Sabbath. But there's a document that's called the, uh, the Didache, which is a Greek word that means teaching full name of the document is the teaching of the apostles or the teaching of the 12 apostles and it's a little bit like a um, almost like a, a constitution for a first century church it's it's a document that's dated somewhere around the end of the first century it's really interesting useful document it's worth having a having a look at and it's a kind of Christian community end of the first century document that says this is how we do things around here and as part of that it talks about prayer and fasting and it says let not your fasts be with the hypocrites they fast on the second and the fifth day of the week rather fast on the fourth day and the preparation which is the Friday the day before the Sabbath mm -hmm. so that's just a little hint that what they were deliberately trying to do is distance themselves from the Jewish practice of fasting on the second and fifth day and, and doing things differently so that might just support the uh, first day of the week being different from the sabbath to be distinct from judaism and, and jewish practice that document is it tremendously useful actually it covers all sorts of different aspects yeah. of the life of, of, a, of a christian in the first century i think we'll probably reference some other aspects um, in a moment So we're going in in the evening then on the first day of the week after a day's work. So we've done a day's yeah. work and we're going in on the evening. Where do you think we'd be going? So we're not going to church because there were no churches mm -hmm. uh, as buildings. Um, we read in Acts 2 that they gathered in the temple and that they gathered house to house. Probably gathering at the temple, that's more where they would have again been reaching out to the Jewish population in Jerusalem and, and, and telling people about, about Jesus. But when it comes to coming together, Christians coming together to, for worship and to break bread and remember Jesus, that's in their houses. 
So the, the house churches, house gatherings, essentially. It's probably worth just mentioning the word that's used in the Greek in the New Testament where we read church. It's the Greek ekklesia, uh, which basically means an assembly. It's, it, it isn't about a building. It's about a group of people coming together. It's a, it's a, a well-used word. You know, when a group of the citizens of a, of a town come together to make a decision about some civil matter or take a vote on something, that's an ecclesia it's an assembly so that's what that's what's happening they're meeting in in uh, in houses and as we go through the rest of the new testament there are examples of of people using their houses as meeting places for uh, for the church so a good example is is philemon which is the the smallest of the letters uh, of paul that we have in the new testament that letter just opens up with this greeting paul a prisoner for christ jesus and timothy our brother to philemon our beloved fellow worker and aphia our sister and archippus our fellow soldier and the church in your house so this is um you know a, le- a letter to these individuals and the and the church that is meeting in in their house it turns out that philemon is an owner of slaves and so he's clearly you know more wealthy than average i would say so you know i you can imagine the sort of roman villa type building which tends to be built around a courtyard. And in that courtyard is is quite possibly where local Christians would, would gather together to, to do what whatever they do. Yeah. I think there's some there's some indication that something similar happened in Philippi as well, in the house of Lydia. That there was a, a family that, you know, Lydia and her family were baptized and probably initially would have held services or held, you know, memorial meetings, as you would call it today, in their house. Okay. So you're talking about a slave owner there and you talk about slaves and we'll come on to that in a, in a moment but who would have been in the church who would have been in the in the gathering during these uh during this friday evening and this is this is something that is that really starts to mark christian the christian communities out from the rest of roman society i think in because this would be a gathering of men and women from all levels of society mm. and and that and that's really other than you know, huge gatherings like, you know, in the, the circus, that's really unusual for um, Greek and Roman society to have all of those levels of society coming together to do the same thing together and share a meal together, for example. That's really unusual. Everyone's on the same level, whether you're, you know, at the top of the tree, the, the owner of the house um, or the um, or a slave. Because, you know, the, the Roman culture was sort of operating around these honour, shame principles that if you, you know, everything, it was very important who you related to in society and whether that brought you honour or shame. You know, if you did something for someone lower the, than you in the hierarchy, that was honourable for you. But if someone lower down the hierarchy did something for you, that would be a shame. And Roman society was very hierarchical with patricians, the father of the family, and then it would have clients who were free men, maybe, but were of a lower status, but dependent on the patronage of the um, of the more wealthy patrician. And then right down at the bottom of the uh, the pyramid are the slaves who are who are there in the household, yeah, being being told what to do. So we almost get a, almost get like a flattening of mm. of the of the org structure within this church. And mm. in uh, Philemon, we have that very starkly put forward with with the story there of a of a runaway slave uh, who's become a Christian and then. Goes goes back to his master Mm. and the respect that needs to be shown in both directions between this runaway slave and the the uh, master i mean philemon is a really good example because it's a letter to philemon but we just read the opening verse it's actually not just a letter to philemon it kind of reads a bit like a personal letter but it's not it's it's to philemon and to the church in his house Mm. 
But it's all about this slave of Philemon's, Onesimus, who's run away to Rome. In Rome, he's met Paul and looks like he's become a Christian as a result of meeting Paul in Rome. And now Paul is sending him back to Philemon, his master, and urging him to receive his slave back. You know, the treatment of a runaway slave is normally normally not good. But here, Paul is sending him back. And actually, he says that he is Philemon is to re- receive him no longer as a slave, but more than a slave, as a beloved brother. So he's asking Philemon not to just to receive him back as a slave, but to receive him now as as an equal, as a brother. And and this letter is to the church. So here's here's Philemon, the church in his house. This letter is read out. Onesimus might have been the one that brought the letter and read it out. And in front of everyone, Philemon is being told by Paul, "You must receive this slave back, not as a slave, but as as a brother, equal." Yeah. As though it's me, as though it's Paul, as though you're receiving Paul. And, you know, that's a really powerful message to that church gathered there in Philemon's house. You're all equal. Treat each other as um, brothers and sisters. Yeah. No respect to persons. So it cuts through, doesn't it? Like the cultural uh, structure would, which would have been imposed on them. And, you know, it's it comes out in Galatians as well, where it says, you know, you're not bond or free. You're not male or female, mm. um, June or yeah. Greek. You're all one. Um, and there's this kind of oneness within um, the within response to the gospel. Yeah. Now that I mean that's a that's a good theory, but human beings are human beings. There's going to be a lot of tension and issues in trying to achieve that. That's not something that just happens. Well, and, and in fact, here's a letter which actually um, demonstrates that this is something that needs to be uh, worked on. Yeah. Okay. So we're, we're entering this community, this gathering of of people in in Philippi. We're surrounded by a whole load of people, some really uh, rich folks and some maybe some not so rich folks um, from different backgrounds, different cultures. They're all mixed together. What's going to happen next? Where do I sit? Where do I get my hymn book from? Uh, what, what's going on? Yeah, and, and those those kind of images of modern church service probably don't fit very well with you know walking into this household, into the courtyard. In, a, in this Roman villa and it's maybe set up for everybody to sit around a table or recline around a table and share a meal and and that would essentially be something that is done in in remembrance of of Jesus or it's it has a focal point which is which is about remembering Jesus in taking a sharing bread and wine after the pattern of Jesus doing that around a meal the last supper with his uh, with his disciples and there's there's examples in Paul's letter to the Corinthians he talks about them coming together to 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 eat and drink and the letter of jude talks about these love feasts these meals that are in remembrance of jesus and his love so originally you know whether by 65 ad and the and the time of tremendous hummus was still a meal it seems to have quite quickly moved from that to something simpler the sharing of of bread bread and wine so the didache which we mentioned earlier uh, around the end of the first century talks about a thing called the eucharist which is uh, a word that means thanksgiving and it talks about taking the cup and then it gives it gives a sort of short model prayer to be to be said uh, before the cup is shared and then it says um, about taking the bread and it gives a little model prayer for giving before sharing the bread. And it also says, you know, unless they have been, unless people have been baptized into the name of the Lord, they shouldn't take the bread and the wine in remembrance of Jesus. So, yeah, and I think that that's almost within those that those few words in that uh, part from the Jadake, you start to see some of the the tensions that we're gonna gonna see in the coming series around mm. baptism and about who takes uh, the bread and the wine, or what does baptism really mean. We'll be covering a little bit of that. Um, so yeah, really, and it's really good to see uh, in that didache, which is 
what, say, was it 100 years after the death of Christ? Was that kind of the time? Yeah, probably less than that. We're seeing elements of what we see in our memorial services today. So we're sat in the courtyard and we're we're engaged in all of this and we're just about maybe to start but then somebody somebody walks in uh, i think it's uh, uh limulus papyrus the egyptologist um he's just walked in <laughs> he's a newcomer um and he he wants to join in what do we do what, what, what how do we deal with that situation that's a good question and, and there's examples of things like uh letters of recommendation where somebody would come from a um, another Christian community in another place and want to you know happen to be traveling through or visiting and uh, and they would bring along a letter of recommendation from from their home community as it were and actually there's an example in the letter to the Romans I think um, Paul sends the letter with Phoebe and, yeah. and he says I commend Phoebe to you uh, so there's that that sort of thing so that you might expect someone who's uh, you know a complete stranger just walking in um, I presume tremendous hummus has brought his uh, his letter of uh, commendation he brought his credentials with him yeah he's new into the area <laughs> and, and yeah the didache again deals with this situation it talks about you know receive every Everyone who comes in the name of the Lord. So it's definitely not a case of just just anyone can just just join in. It's essentially someone who has um, who can demonstrate that yes, they've they're a Christian. They've chosen that that way of life. And and there's provisions in the Didache about you know if somebody comes but they're just passing through. That's fine. They can share things with uh, with you. But if they're going to stay, then they should they should work. They should support themselves if they can, and uh, and so on. So so there's provisions for that that sort of thing. These Christian communities, I think it would quite quickly become known that anyone who just turns up and says yeah. they're a Christian can uh, can be supported by them. Yeah. And uh, and there's so there's a bit of protection against against that. Okay, so we've got um the credentials have been checked and you know there's a there's a nice letter mm. of recommendation and so was it frivolous ceremonious? No, it wasn't. It was uh, limitless. Is is now able to kind of join with us. But we won't just be doing the memorial service, the core bit and the bread and the wine. Um when we when we meet together in the 21st century, we do a lot of other stuff as well. Yeah. So what, what could we expect, maybe? Uh, what indications do we have from first century um, examples? There's quite a bit about this in, in Paul's first letter to the, to the Corinthians, ch- uh, chapter 14. talks about an, an orderly kind of worship service. It says, you know, what then, brothers? When you come together, each one has a hymn, a lesson, a revelation, a tongue, or a, an interpretation. Let all things be done for building up. And so it goes on to say, well, yeah, everybody wants to make their contribution to this gathering of Christians and what they've come together to do, whether it's a, a hymn, singing, or, or a prayer, or, or a teaching, exposition, or interpretation. But do it in an orderly, orderly way, one at a time, and be respectful of each other. And, uh, you know, perhaps that would have been led and overseen by the elders of the local community. That, that's, I guess, another feature of, of these church gatherings that uh, when Paul says, for example, to Titus, he sends him to Crete to set things in order in all of the uh, communities there. And he says, appoint elders in every place. So each community would have its smaller group of, of elders that would, that would make sure things were done in a suitably orderly way. Yeah. There's another thing that we just get a hint of that would have been done, particularly in these early early decades. The letter, Paul's letter to the Colossians, 
chapter four, uh, towards the end of that, uh, it's actually the last last few verses of the chapter of the letter. He says, when this letter has been read among you, have it also read in the church of the Laodiceans and see that you also read the letter from Laodicea. So another thing that could have happened, you know, as well as hymns and prayers and teachings and and then sharing this meal and remembering Jesus and bread and wine is reading out a a letter that was perhaps being circulated uh, amongst Christian communities from someone like Paul or Timothy or something like that and and just sitting as a group and listening to that that letter being read out. I I think um, you know that's you know reminiscent of things that happen within our own communities now we have bible readings uh, but they would have had the original as it were mm. they would have been reading um these letters that would have been sent um, from paul etc guiding them through difficult times and some of these letters were circular letters as well weren't they they mm. would have gone round from you know different uh, communities to the next one in order to help each of them and so maybe maybe a member of this community in, in philippi is meticulous stylus the scribe <laughs> and he would do a he would do a copy of the letter and, and they'd keep a copy and send a copy to, to the next town to be read there. You just had to get that one in. <laughs> yeah, excellent. Okay, so that all makes good sense. And I like the, the kind of edification and build, upbuilding um, aspect of it. So all of the things that needed to be done there were there to kind of encourage and uh, build people up. And there's particular reference in those chapters in uh, Corinthians about not, you know, not getting into the anarchy of people talking out over each other. And because mm. the whole point being that you're there to be encouraged and, and built up. So th- that makes good sense. And now, obviously, in all of the the spread of the gospel, it would have gone to different communities. It would have gone to different cultures and backgrounds, and they would have had their own way of of structuring these meetings and lots of social interaction at the same time, uh, you know, occurring with all these these people getting together and experiences being shared. What is the core of what happens in each of these meetings that they really need to protect from change? And how much of it can be variations depending on where you are, where you're coming from, etc. And, and how much of it is, you know, needs to be protected from that change? Yeah, there's a really strong message that comes through, uh, you know, the letters of Paul, that there are essential truths about mm. the gospel of Jesus Christ. And, and they are true. And if they're denied, then that's false. And so in Galatians, his letter to the Galatians, for example, he does his normal opening greeting and says grace and peace to you and then he's straight in with a really strong message about i'm astonished that you're deserting him who called you to the grace of christ and turning to a different gospel not that there is another gospel and he says it over and over again there's one gospel and you must not depart from that the essential truths of that gospel and in his first letter to the corinthians as well he talks about people saying that the resurrection is past and and is and is not Mm. a thing to hope for and, and he says, if, if that's the case, then your faith is, is pointless. Your faith is futile. So there are some really key truths that, that must be believed, kept, maintained, not, not changed and, and, and challenged about the gospel of, of Jesus Christ. I think there's, there's another, another aspect, which again comes through quite fiercely in Paul's writings, is how eager he is to stress that the body of believers, Christians, should remain united, should, should stick together. Mm-hmm. It's again in Galatians, there's an occasion when in Antioch, the church splits into a Jewish component and a Gentile component. And Peter, the apostle Peter, kind of goes along with this for a bit. 
and kind of meets with the Jewish half. And Paul really comes down hard on him and, and you know, withstands and rebukes him publicly for that and say, no, that's absolutely not in accordance with the truth of the gospel. The point of the gospel is you've got to stay together. There's not a Jewish flavor church and a Gentile flavor church. You've got to stay together. So that, that again, is something that is really fiercely argued for and protected. Yeah. And I think that's something that as we go through church history, we will find that unity based on shared doctrine and application mm. and practice is really important and obviously where people deviate from that that's where you start to get this this problem so i'm sure we'll see that in the next few weeks uh, as well yeah there's there's a you know there's a message not to divide those that share the same belief but there is also a message about you know people not changing that and going off and forming a new group and creating division uh, in that way as well but the, you know in terms of practice there's very little actually that is is kind of fixed there's there's baptism which is the the sign of someone joining the christian community and then there's the weekly first day of the week sharing of bread and wine that's it really and i presume the, the majority around that kind of framework of core activities the rest of that of the stuff could be fairly flexible mm. depending on the ability of the people in the group and and also what edified them i suppose mm. which was the whole point of of that of the activity that were happening uh, as we saw in 1 Corinthians. Yeah, it's interesting. That's that's a really pared down um, group of things um, that they were all doing commonly. And it contrasts really, doesn't it, with, with the Jews observing the Jewish laws and um, the feasts and all the things that were surrounding Judaism. Yeah, which which involved, you know, quite precise procedures for, for doing certain things and worshipping in certain ways at certain times of, of the week and the month and the year. And, and again, that the imposition of those Jewish things was something that was... Uh, was resisted um, a sort of a more legalistic approach to to religion where as long as you perform these things and tick these mm -hmm. boxes then then that's um that's what you need to do that sort of approach was uh, was very much resisted and, and paul talked quite disparagingly about people that were wanting to go back to that and sort of you know going back to those weak and beggarly elements to, uh, and to the things that you've actually escaped from okay so we haven't got that the same structure as, as judaism we've got a core couple of things that seems to be commonly observed and performed but what are the elements that could they could be flexible about i mean we've seen i think that where they met and when they met was pretty fluid and depended on kind of opportunity and fitting it in around working patterns and so on the the order and length of service and so on was probably pretty flexible as long as it was orderly and you know rever suitably reverential then that that works it might even been done in different languages as long as there was an interpreter there so and a lot of that flexibility was really required i think particularly at times towards the end of the first century when the, the communities have grown they start to become noticed by the the roman authorities uh, the Jewish authorities had already got pretty upset with them uh, and tried to resist the, the growth of these Christian communities. The Romans start to notice them and see it as a challenge to the cohesion of their empire um, because they're not worshipping the emperor and offering sacrifice to the emperor and so on. And so, you know, persecution starts to emerge and 
so they've got to be pretty flexible about how and where and when they they meet and, and what they do because they've got to perhaps keep things secret. You know, the earliest example of a purpose-built church, a space specifically built for Christians to come together, it's somewhere in uh, in Jordan, in Aqaba, but it's a cave. It's, it's essentially somewhere hidden, somewhere that they could come together and in secret they could they could meet. And uh, the fish symbol of Christianity mm. was originally, it seems, a, a sign that could be kind of scratched on a door or on a wall somewhere and was a sign to Christians, a secret sign to Christians that, that yes, there's a, there's a gathering going to happen here and you, you're safe to come. Uh, so yeah lots of lots of flexibility around that sort of thing yeah and i suppose with a fledgling christianity here they had to be flexible in order to overcome Hmm. um some of the the persecution again that'll be something that we talk about in our second session as part of our church history that kind of development of persecution throughout the Hmm. ages and having to develop and be flexible about what you're doing in order to maintain your faith and the practice coming together as a community is very important mm. so this behavior then or the these activities that, that that we've spoken about there's a core of those and then you know you add to those based on your circumstances what about the the expected behavior of of uh, members of this um, ecclesia or this uh, this church what would to be expected obviously it wasn't judaism and they were coming from lots of different cultures and backgrounds. We talk about freedom in Christ. What, what does this mean? There's another force pulling Christians in sort of the opposite direction of legalism, I think, mm. here. So, which is the attitude that uh, we've escaped from a system of laws and rituals. And so we're free to do and behave exactly how we want. And Paul responds to that in um, in, in one of his letters to, to Corinth, where he quotes from people that are saying, well, all things are lawful now. And so he responds to that and makes it very clear that the, the lifestyle that is expected of a Christian, uh, of a committed Christian, mm. you know, and it, and it isn't immoral. It, it isn't deceitful. It isn't engaged in drunken, riotous behavior. You know, all of those things. That, no, that's unacceptable. It's pretty clear what lifestyle is expected and is appropriate for a Christian. And in fact, in that Didache, this church constitution, the first section of it is all about how Christians should live. There's, it talks about the way of life. And it's very much like the Sermon on the Mount. It draws very heavily on the Sermon on the Mount. And then it goes, uh, and, but there's a way of death that is... So it's the, the moral conduct of, of these Christian communities was, was an important feature. Yeah, there was obviously this unleashing of this, or, the, or a misunderstanding of what grace was, mm. um, and turning it into something which meant that they could do whatever they wanted, and they could seek forgiveness for, yeah. for the things they'd done wrong. And you get that coming out of, of the letter of Jude, uh, where it talks about um, a people to turning grace into a license to do stuff that they shouldn't really be doing. And and you can see, you know, that's not unique to the first century. You know, anyone who's experienced Mm -hmm. a a number of different church gatherings, communities, institutions will be able to recognise there's some that pull you towards the sort of legalistic and there's some that pull towards the anything goes kind of attitude and treading the line in the middle, in doing things that are edifying to the glory of God is is always a challenge between those two forces pulling in opposite directions. Yeah, so it's a balance between the, the two of them. Okay, well, I think that's been a really good introduction. We've been on a journey with tremendous Hamas, and we've uh, understood maybe some of the background of, of uh, the Christian experience in, in the first century. We've had some insights into the tensions, and particularly that tension that we've just illustrated between legalism and liberalism. Uh, also, the differences 
um, in culture, so the Jewish culture and the Greek culture. The differences between um, the hierarchy of individuals in society as well and how they needed to overcome that collaborating with the state um, and avoiding persecution you know what's the balance there about where does the law tell me that I can no longer worship Jesus and what should I do about that uh, and how do I avoid persecution so we've seen them in the caves with with you know creating the symbol to to indicate that they are Christian believers and and they should you know others should should join there so it sets us up I think really well for for our series on uh, Christian or church history and we're going to cover three main areas we've got um, a guest speaker who will be joining us on those um, sessions we're going to cover three topics we're going to cover baptism and see what the development of baptism was uh, from very early Christianity and then through throughout those um, early years uh, we're going to look at the persecution of believers over time as well and see how that's developed and what was it that was the impetus for persecution and then finally we're going to look at church organization and see how that's um, altered over over time we've covered a little bit of it today uh, but we're going to go into a little bit more detail in our third session um, looking at church history well thank you very much for uh, listening this has been bible feed podcast and if you want to follow us on social media please do so um, look for bible feed online and if you want to go to our website which is biblefeed.org please give us some suggestions on future topics topics or feedback on um, the sessions and the podcasts that you've heard already. Thank you for listening. You've been listening to the Bible Feed podcast. Thanks for joining us. We're always keen to hear what you think, hear your questions or subjects you'd like us to discuss. Get in touch with us on our Facebook page or send a message from our webpage at biblefeed.org and be part of the journey.